All right, we have an interesting time planned for you this morning. Um, <coughs> just a, a lot of things that, that we want to do. So I, I need you to kind of shift gears and think of this more today as like a late night talk show. Um, as we work through different sorts of things and shift gears. So, so I'd like you to welcome my first guest on the late night talk show, uh, Michelle Fetty. M- Michelle Fetty has um, recently returned from Haiti, and I'm hoping she's here in this building. Yeah, there she is. Okay. You're not backing out now, Michelle. Um, our vision is to bring Isaiah 58 to Brunswick and Cleveland and children everywhere. And Isaiah 58 is all about uh, being generous and sharing what you have and showing the love of Jesus with those who need it. And um, one of the ways that we can do that is by going overseas to places, you know, the poorest of the poor to the third world. And I know I never thought much of that because in my mind, um, for most of my life, um, there's plenty to take care of here. And I'm best suited for reaching my own context. And and that was what I thought. And then in 2010, I had the opportunity to go to Ecuador and see third world poverty for the first time ever. And my views about all of that changed. I was profoundly impacted by what that, not only by what it means to go there, but even more so how that benefited my life and my own walk with God. So, Michelle... Welcome back, Thank you. and we are all very just thrilled that you were able to do that um, with us along with you in spirit. Yes. Tell us a little bit about what you did. Just give a quick overview of the trip. The whole, I, the whole purpose when we went there was to work with Sunlight Ministries, who have been there for probably about 28 years, and they have a school there that has up to 350 students, and uh, preschool through 12th grade, and we went there to work with the teachers as teachers' aides, help in any way that they needed. And then that was mostly the women that did that. And then some of our guys that went, they worked on um, construction projects. There is a new church and Bible college that is near completion, so there were still some bricks that need put into that, um, some trucks that needed fixed, things like that. Um, Also, aside from working in the school, we had opportunities to go to the local market, to go hiking through the countryside and meet some of the families as we passed their homes. Um, We were fortunate enough to have a French teacher with us, so she helped with communication to some degree. And um, we we got to see the hospital and the orphanage. Um, And everywhere that we went, we either walked or we went on taxis, which were motorcycles, which is very interesting in a dress. And and the other mode of transportation were called (laughs) tap-taps. And they were just large flatbed trucks that you would pay to ride on the back of at your own risk. So um, there was a lot to do there. We got to see a lot of things, and we were really out in the community a lot. So, so give me, and I, I, don't, I didn't prep you for this one, but just one or two specific highlights of the trip for you, stories. Well, this was kind of a highlight and a low light. Um, one of the things, I had my heart broke terribly on this trip by this one little girl named Diana. And uh, I was working in the seventh grade class with uh, Miss Megan was my teacher. And the first day I was working with students doing individualized testing. 
And then the next day, when I went in, I still needed to finish up. And the, and the teacher had asked me, she says, we have this girl, Diana, who has a bad tooth. And there was a dentist's group visiting the same time we were there. She said, would you go with her? She's very nervous, and she needs someone with her. So I went over to the dentist's group, and this poor girl had to have this tooth pulled, and it's nothing like here, because they don't have all the materials that, that we normally have. They don't have the pain medications. So this woman, this little girl, this seventh grader, she gets Novocaine. They start pulling her tooth, and it's not working. And the poor little thing has hold of my hands, and she's just in terrible pain. She's pulling her feet up. And finally, the dentist stopped, gave her more Novocaine, and she went through this like a trooper. And I'm telling you what, I'm there for her, but I'm almost in tears just dealing with the, what I'm seeing her deal with. And we got done, and I just about picked her up. I gave her such a big hug because she was so very brave. And um, later on that day, she was having some pain. We got her some ibuprofen, and she, she was much better. But that night at our devotions, we had devotions every night. That night at devotions, I tried to tell this story, and I just broke down. And although my heart was broken over this girl, it was such a, a great experience to have gone through this with her that I will just never forget that. I mean, she was just, she was so brave. And it made me realize how fortunate we are here to have all the things that we have that she just had to deal with as a child. So Take, take a minute and describe the landscape. Um, it's just something different seeing third world poverty firsthand. How did that affect you, and what did you see? The, the, the people or the landscape, because they're both, yeah. Um, the best way I can describe it is when we went on some of the hikes, um, some of the permanent missionaries there would take us on these hikes where we went all the way up into the mountains and then back down into the communities where people lived. And um, when we would be up in the mountains, we would meet the families, and the view was like something you've never seen. It was probably the most beautiful place I've ever been. And the families that we met there, they were so poor and so welcoming, though. They wanted to talk to you. They wanted to know about you. You got to see about them. Um, and then when we would come down into the uh, city areas, it would be, you could see the beauty of the palm trees and the water and the mountains all around you. But you're standing in these cities, these communities where Every house doesn't have a roof, and every house is in a compound-like uh, fencing. And in the front of all of these houses, along describe the road, a house because you're using the house, word house. Yeah, it's sort of like um, a conglomeration of bricks that sometimes have a roof, sometimes does not have a roof. How big? Uh, maybe what 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 most of us would consider a large bedroom, sometimes. Yeah. Um, and they would have however many people in these homes, depending on how big their family was. Um, and, and the way it looked, it looked like a bomb had hit everywhere. Um, and these people were fine within that. But in the front of all these houses, there would be ditches full of raw sewage. There's no sewage system there. And, and it was just, you know, about three feet wide and just full all the time. And then when it would rain, because it rained three days that we were there, um, it comes up into the streets, and it mixes in with the dirt. And there's no clean drinking water for these people. Um, and, and as you walk down the street, you would never want to be barefoot because there's sewage and trash everywhere. And um, I can go into my story, story about yeah, Jeremy. Yeah, please do. We were on a hike one day, and 
to get from one place to another, sometimes you have to walk across these fields of sewage. And they'll be bricks or old tires or something that you can walk across. And we had about a 12-foot area to cover, and so we were walking across tires. One of the fellas in our group slipped, which at the time was somewhat funny, but not really. <laughs> he slipped, one of his feet went into the muck, and one went onto the land. And of course, he immediately pulled his foot out while his shoe stayed. And we have about two more miles to get back to Sunlight Ministries where we were headed. And the rest of us came across, and he's standing there with one sock and black up to his knee. And one of the permanent missionaries there, Benny, he was kind enough to reach in up to his elbow and pull this shoe out for Jeremy, the fellow that had fallen in. So when we got past the humorous stage, we were, like, we were all like, well, what are we going to do? And there, from nowhere, this woman came out, this Haitian woman. She had about a five-gallon bucket full of water. Now, keeping in mind that these people have little to no drinking water, she came up, she grabbed Benny's arm, and she washed his arm in this bucket. And she grabbed Jeremy's shoe, and she put his shoe in this bucket and cleaned it. And when she decided that everyone was sufficiently clean and not going to have any problems, she dumped the water out, and she went back to where she came from without a thought about anything for herself, without being concerned that she's just wasted a week's worth of water. And I saw that, and I thought to myself, wouldn't it be a blessing if each one of us could have in our heart what she had in her heart that day without any hesitation? I mean, it, she was, it was amazing to watch, to be a part of that happening. And that's how we were treated the whole time that we were there. These people who have nothing are willing to give you everything. That's one of the things I learned in Ecuador is you cannot outgive the poor. No. And, and, and third world poverty is different than American poverty. It is. Um, profoundly different. But if it, it is true. If, I mean, I don't even know what the equivalent would be for us to match an act of what she did. Right. Um, but it would be probably more than what we would typically do once a year. I mean, and that's just a daily thing for them. It is, yeah. It, it, it's just overwhelming to see how giving and how gracious they are. How do you think this will affect your walk with God? Oh, my goodness. The whole trip. The, the whole trip has just changed the way I've looked at so many different things from um, my, my daily interaction and prayer time, from the way I interact with my family, from the way I interact with my friends, um, from the way I view so many things, um, having seen what I saw there, we are so, so blessed. And we, we can't give enough thanks for the things that we have. Um, it's something that I just feel like I need to reach out even more than I, than I ever have, than I ever thought I could. There's so much that needs to be done in the Lord's name. I mean, it has to, we have to bring more people to us so we can help more, you know, into the church so that we can help more people and bring, be the hands and feet of Jesus, hands and feet of Jesus everywhere. I mean, whether it is in Haiti or whether it's in Cleveland or wherever it's at, there's people that need what God gives all of us, and they need to be able to see it through what we can do in his name. I mean, it's just there's so much to do. You can never do it all. You realize that it really is just the tip of the iceberg when oh. you go on a trip like that. Oh, it is. Yeah. It truly is. Okay, so part of the story behind this trip is that we are um, – we are very fortunate in that 
one of the, the church that probably had the biggest impact in starting Polaris Christian Church in 1999 when we started here was a church called River Tree down in Canton, Ohio. And River Tree is a great big church of like 3,000 people, and they are, I mean, I mean, probably our biggest cheerleaders. They, they good relationship. And, um, and what they've basically said is, is uh, um, they take, they value getting people overseas or just within the country to places of poverty, exposing to, to things like that. Um, they do trips to Haiti and South America and Africa and uh, Appalachia and places like that. And, and they're, they're a big church with a lot of resources and can handle the logistics of those kinds of things. We're not yet. Right. And so um, what they've said is, you know, you just get your people down here and we'll, they can go with us just like they're a part of River Tree. Right. And so talk about what it was like to go with another group of, of, of Christians from another church and specifically about the funding, because I think a lot of people would say, well, I just can never afford to do that. Right, right. Um, first of all, I had a great experience in, in traveling with another church and, and working with another church. And the other thing is, is Polaris wasn't the only other one represented uh, in this group. We had uh, two other churches. One was out of Cincinnati, actually. So there was a group of 19 of us from various different churches and I was very hesitant at first. When Jeremy first, or Jeremy, I'm sorry. When Alex first, you look like him. When, <laughs> when Alex first spoke Sorry about for this, Jeremy. <laughs> I, I knew I wanted to go from the first time he mentioned this mission trip. But I was very hesitant because I, I'm, I tend to not want to meet a lot of new people. Kind of like to stay in the background. And I was nervous about all these new people that I would meet. But I made myself go. I met these people, and it was a really good experience because it's not just like, okay, we're going, and we left. We had very many meetings in between last spring and now when we went. Um, plus, we had, and, and, and Jess Adkins, the fellow that leads the mission trips there, he's done this for 20-some-odd years, and he's very, very good at it. Um, Plus, we got a great opportunity to work together um, at the Christian Children's Home in Worcester one day, probably two, a month and a half ago. And we cut down trees, and we moved furniture, and we tore a deck off of a building. And we all just were there working together, and we knew that we would mesh well. So that helped me get more comfortable with the fact that I would be overseas with these people that I barely knew. Um, the other thing is... Um, the connections that you made. I know that just from that week that we were together that I've made two, one or two lifelong friends. The, the ladies that I roomed with were incredibly awesome and we've already been talking all this week since we've been back and they actually wanted to come out here today and I told them no because it's such a long drive. But, uh, but yeah, I, I mean... it's one more people in the audience. <laughs> that might have something to do with it. <laughs> But, um, yeah, so it's a really good experience um, to, to go with a larger church like that, just and, because and, of the background. And for funding? And for funding, funding was interesting. Um, that was some of the meetings we had on how we were going to get there, how we could afford to get there. Um, and I'm kind of stubborn, and again, because I don't like to step outside of my comfort zone sometimes, we were asked to send letters to our family, friends, coworkers, our church family, whomever, to help us fund this travel that we were going to do. 
And they gave us an amount that, you know, was not unreasonable, what we wanted to go reach as our goal. And again, because I'm afraid to step out of my comfort zone and because I felt awkward, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to pay for this myself. I'm just going to write the check. I'll be done with it. I don't have to reach out to all these people. It, it doesn't work for me. Well, during one of our meetings, um, it was, we were told that um, you're more than welcome to donate to your own trip, but we need you to send out these letters because it's not about you. It's about reaching out to the people that can't go to Haiti or have yeah. other reasons that they're not going to be able to go, but want to support these people and still want to be the hands and feet of Jesus, just like you're trying to do, just like this is good for you. They need to be involved as well. And I thought to myself, and, and this was a huge lesson that I learned before we even left the ground, who am I to be judging all these people about what's in their heart? And I sent out my letters like I was supposed to, and oh my gosh, the generosity of everyone was overwhelming. I, I sent letters out to people that, in my head, in judging them, I thought, whatever. They're not going to help. They're not going to help fund it. They're not going to say prayers. And, and I was in tears so many times because I had no idea, and I was too darn stubborn and too darn judgmental to let people do what was in their own hearts. Yeah, and if you want to go on a trip, um, there are a lot of people who say, you know what, I can't because I'm in a bad life stage right now with young kids or whatever, but I'd love to be a part of this by sending X amount of dollars. Right. So, so the funding it, can come pretty quickly. It can. Um, it's amazing how generous people are. Okay, one more quick thing, and that is if somebody out there right now is contemplating going, eh, should I go, should I not go on one of these kinds of week-long trips, you would tell them? Go. Absolutely go. <laughs> go, go, go. It doesn't matter if, if it's Haiti or Peru or Africa if it's somewhere in the United States, I can guarantee you it will be equally as rewarding, and you'll have better communication. But, but, but I mean, my first mission trip that I went on last year, and I'm sorry I waited to this point in my life to start doing this, was just to the Christian Children's Home. We did a carnival out there last summer, and what a great experience that was. You know, Haiti was a lot longer, but, but you cannot beat going out and, and the life experience that it gives you the interaction it gives you, the things that your eyes are opened up to, especially about yourself, not just the people that you're there trying to assist, but, but what you find out about you that you might never have known any other way. So that is definitely go. And especially if you have kids, I know the, the youth group is gone, but if you have kids and they show any desire to do something like that, we had families go, we had, yeah. you know, teenagers go. It was... It's an experience for whomever, and the earlier you get started in things like this, you might view things differently from a young age forward. Yeah, so, if God allows us, we absolutely yeah. will expose our kids as soon as it's safe right. um, to third world poverty uh, because it just it's a life changer. Well, thank you thank so much, Michelle. You are so welcome. We appreciate you going to Haiti for us. And <laughs> thank you so much. Okay, I'll take it. Um, Um, okay, we're going to uh, do our next little uh, segment of tonight's show. Um, I'm kidding. This is not a show, and it's not tonight. So I um, um, want to get into the book of, of Matthew. Uh, but before I do that, take a look at this video, which kind of uh, leads into our topic.
<coughs> Marcus showed me that video, um, and the first thing I, I thought is we got to get that on a Sunday because um, it, it kind of captures, and we're going to move into to Matthew chapter 9 and, and, and talk a little bit about sharing our faith. And I know that most followers of Jesus understand that, that sharing what God is doing in your life and sharing who Jesus is is something that God wants of us, something that he essentially requires of us. But like the video, we, we fear that because of the awkwardness of, of the... I, I think you got a couple things going on. One is just, and I, and I hear some of you say, I know that I have to share my faith, but I just, I don't know enough about the Bible, and I don't know what to say, and I'm, you know, I'm just getting nervous. And, and, and then we also have the other side of it where, where we see where it goes wrong. You know, like when you're in an elevator with somebody and, and threaten the fires of hell or, you know, pass out the little tracks, put them on the bar urinals, um, things like that that, that just are probably not the great, no offense if you've done that, just, you know, not the greatest modern approach to, um, to sharing our faith. But when we get to Matthew chapter 9, we, we see some technique. We get to see some example from, from not only Jesus, but also one of Jesus' disciples. And, and so we're able to learn today from the best. And, and I'm going to take some time on Matthew chapter 9. Uh, I wanted to hear from Michelle um, so I'm probably not going to finish Matthew 9 today or this particular passage, but I think that this passage is very, very, very important to a walk with God because it gives us an example of the lifestyle of Jesus. So remember we say that we want to be followers of Jesus, not just believers, but we want to follow the example of his life. And this particular passage starting in Matthew 9, 9, uh, is, is just, I think, one of the best stories in the gospel, uh, one of the, the, the greatest examples of the unique kind of life that Jesus lived and really exploits the difference between churchy people who believe the right things about Jesus but might not follow Jesus and churchy or non-churchy people who believe the right things about Jesus but also follow his lifestyle. So I'm going to read this passage, and we'll just break it down. And what we don't get done this week, we'll get done next week. Matthew 9, 9. Again, I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles and follow along. Um, It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." So let me walk through this and talk a little bit about what this passage means, and then we'll talk about what it means maybe to, to you and to me, and then what are we going to do about it. Um, the first unique element of this particular story is that this is the author's story. So the Matthew that's sitting there at the tax collector's booth is the Matthew who wrote the gospel. 
And I can't help but think that this was a sentimental and exciting moment for Matthew. I mean, he's well into the book. He talks about the birth of Jesus. He talks about the early ministry and some of the teachings and some of the miracles. And then he gets to his story, his unique story of what God is doing in his life, his story of meeting Jesus and how that changed his life. And I can't help but... I guess I hope that you, like Matthew, are aware of your story. I hope that you believe that God has a plan for your life, that you're a part of God's larger story. And I hope that you have, and if if you have not, that you will, uh, begin to, to take time every week, maybe every day, and think about what is God doing in my life right now? Because the Bible is clear that that God does, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been in life, God absolutely has a plan for your life. You are a part of the larger story of what he's doing that began in the book of Genesis and will never end. You're a part of that story, whether you know it or not and whether you can believe it or not. So, So just like Matthew was aware of how he fit in, to the larger scope of Jesus' ministry, you have that part too. And God has been working in your life to bring you to where you are today and to bring you here today. And uh, I hope that, that you can accept that. And, uh, and, and I hope you spend time um, contemplating what God is doing in your life and through your life and then that you're making attempts to, to join what he's doing in you, in your unique story. The second move that we make here, and I'm going to talk more about this next week. There's a fascinating aspect of this story in in knowing that Matthew wrote his gospel to a Jewish crowd. The fact that Jesus went to a tax collector and said, follow me. That's a very unique part of the story, and I'm going to save that for next week because it fits in well with a miracle that Jesus does later in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew in, in the same chapter. Um, but, but what happens next in this story provides all sorts of tension that we see throughout the life of Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe this is tension that you should experience in your own life too. Really neat part of the story. So, so just to sum up tax collector, you are talking about a profession that led to complete rejection from the Jewish culture. So you were considered the worst of the worst, the lowest of the lows, which meant socially, who was there to hang out with? The other worst of the worst and lowest of the lows. So when Jesus, this this rabbi, this Jewish leader, this Jewish superstar, who had done all kinds of miracles and many people believed was the Messiah, or at least there was that tension surrounding him. When he goes to this tax collector and he says, follow me, and he invites him into a special kind of relationship, the first thing this tax collector does is he goes to his friends who represent the worst of the worst and the lowest of the lows, and he throws a party and he invites Jesus And Jesus goes. 
So you have this scenario where, and, and you, gotta, you, you really got to think about the larger picture here. The God of the universe, so picture like the Hubble telescope and the images of the vastness of all that. And the God who created all of that is now flesh for a time being on earth. And this guy who represents the worst of the worst and the most sinful of the sinful invites the God of the universe to a party with his friends who represent the worst of the worst and the sinful, and he goes. And it creates this tension because apparently what we get from the story is that Jesus interacts at a level that throws the religious leaders off guard, which means he's really engaging. It's like they might have expected the Pharisees who were the, the, the keepers of the law and the, you know, the, the, the religious elite, they would have expected a man of God on the level of Jesus to go there and maybe condemn the sinners. But he's interacting with them at a level that produces great tension. And then he goes on to say this, this, this interesting statement. He says, I desire mercy not sacrifice. And what he's pointing out here is this idea of mercy, which is compassion and care for the human being, versus sacrifice, which is about rituals done to please God. And it exposes one of the greatest problems in religion. There's a part of following Jesus that is about living a certain kind of ethical lifestyle. So there are some rules. And if you want to, you know, fight against that language, you call them boundaries or guidelines, whatever, but, but it's rules, and there are rules that we need to follow. But the problem is what people begin to do and have always done is they begin to value the rules above the person. It's the same thing that happens uh, today when, you know, and you can pick this in, let's just go with homosexuality because it's, it's like a big deal of the day, um, where you see Christians who have decided that the Bible teaches that homosexuality is a sin. And, and I believe that the Bible teaches that to practice homosexuality is, is a sin, just like a lot of other things. Um, but you see these Christians right off the human being. And it's, it's like we step into this mode where, where the rule becomes greater than the person. And what Jesus is saying here is that God, he's quoting the Old Testament, when God says, I desire that you love people more than the rule. And this is a, a, you'll see this tension throughout the rest of, of Jesus' life. Um, before the crucifixion and the resurrection. So that's what's going on in the story. Let's talk about some, some, some application points of what does this mean for you? And, and the first thing that I think we can learn, <clears throat> if you're a follower of Jesus and you want to learn how to share your faith effectively, we see this model here where very quickly Matthew in just a couple sentences says, before Jesus, I was a tax collector. Then I met Jesus. And then he goes on for the rest of the book to talk about what life was like after that. So it's just before, then the Jesus encounter, and then after. And I think every follower of Jesus should be aware of their story. 
And we should have it pretty confined and able to articulate it when necessary. So for instance, for me, I might say something like this. When I was in school, I had a tough time fitting in and felt rejected and unloved by my peers. However, at that same time frame, people had invested in me and helped me understand that Jesus loved me no matter what. And as I began to explore a relationship with Jesus and learn in the Bible who Jesus was really like, I began to learn that Jesus does love those who may see themselves as unlovable. And since that time, I want to take the rest of my life to help other people who might feel unlovable understand that God is their father and that he loves them unconditionally. Now, that's about 20 seconds worth of statements. And it comes in handy for me because people are always asking me, what made you decide to go into ministry? And I can just real quick walk them through that. Now, you don't want to bore them. You don't want to, you know, go on forever. But to say, Here's what, here was life before Jesus, and some of you have great before Jesus stories. Um, before Jesus, here's what it was like to meet Jesus, and here's how my life has been different since then. And the deal is, I mean, who can argue with that? See, when we think about sharing faith, a lot of times we think about, you know, working people through whatever, you know, let's get together and study the book of John, and that may work for you, and that's fine, or, you know, in the third law of thermonuclear dynamics, or, you know, whatever, where you're trying to, like, prove God, but for the most part, the most effective stuff is just very relationally, when it's appropriate, say, this was life before, then I met Jesus, this is life now, really quick, and nobody can argue with that, nobody can argue with your story, and these days, the story is way more effective than the, 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 you know, the, the, the methodological, systematic approach to that kind of a thing. So I would challenge you this week, if you're a follower of Jesus, to take a few minutes and, and, and answer those three things. You know, before, Jesus, after. And come up with about 20 seconds, and you'll be surprised in normal conversations how, how many times you have a chance to say, you know, this was life before. We do it all the time with, with restaurants. You know, I, I was looking for a good Mexican restaurant and just nothing. And then I went to Cozumel and had their fire burrito. And oh man, now I go there every Sunday after church. I mean, you know, I mean, that's what we're doing there. And then I regret it the next day. Uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's one of those deals where we, where we do this with other things. We just need to learn how to do it with, with, with our Jesus story. All right. Um, second piece to this is, is that is I want you to notice and this might be something that this story is saying to you, the relational margin that Jesus had. Now think about this. How many people in the history of the world were called to save humanity? One. How many people were called to redeem all of creation? One. How many people were called to be in the presence of God and then go and become a man in order to accurately convey what it was like to be face-to-face in the presence of God because you were God in the flesh. One. So nobody has had the size of calling that Jesus has had, right? I mean, none of us are called to do the magnitude of things that Jesus was called. How many years did he have to do it? Three and a half. 
So he had the hugest calling, and he had three and a half years to do it. And yet, he had time to go to a spontaneous party with Matthew and his friends. Now, my small group is working through this video series by Andy Stanley called uh, something like Take It to the Limit or something like that. Um, and, And he has this statement he keeps going back to of the relationship happens in the margins. And his whole point is that we tend to schedule our lives so full that we have no time for spontaneity or or building real relationships. But Jesus, who was called to do a lot more than you were or I was, maintained a schedule. Uh, He didn't need to be as busy as we need to be. And yet he had way more to accomplish than we ever did or ever will. And, and, and I think that if we're going to really follow Jesus, like, you know, not just believe the right things about him, but live life the way he lived it, it means that we have to. Just like we have to be obedient to his teachings on fidelity or whatever. We should be obedient to his example and have margins in our lives and in our schedule for relationships. And if you're new to Polaris, and a lot of you are, um, one of, our, one of our philosophies as a church that has shifted over the years <coughs> is to be minimalist in our approach to institutional church. And what I mean by that is, is church inside the building. Um, there was a time when, when, when we would say, okay, Sunday morning, we want you here on Sunday morning. And, you know, we still do. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but then we'd say, and we want all our men back on Monday nights for men's ministry. And we want all our women back on Tuesday nights for women's ministry. And on Wednesday, we want you back for our midweek service. And on Thursday, you know, if you're a worship team or ministry team, we want you meeting together um, for your ministry team. And then if we had an event, it would be on Friday or Saturday. We want you to come to that. And, you know, four, five, six nights a week, we're saying, if you're a good church member, you're here. Um, but you got your lawn to mow and um, kids to get to, you know, t-ball. What we were essentially doing is we were pulling you out. We were taking away all of your relational margin so that you couldn't follow the example of Jesus here. You couldn't build friendships with your neighbors and friends. And, um, and, And so part of what I believe here we need to be very serious about to follow the example of Jesus is to have time for relationships to develop around us. Um... And it doesn't say that Jesus did anything particularly spiritual at this. He just seemed to hang out and live life. And the truth is, if people who are far from God are going to see what's true in our life, they're first going to have to feel loved. I know in, in our neighborhood, um, one of the things that my wife and I are starting to try to do is the, you know, the, the late Friday night um, campfire, bonfire outside, just having the neighbors over or the neighborhood Christmas party. And, and, and it's not like Amway where we say, okay, now it's time to go into the living room and we're going to review the five spiritual laws. Um, probably wondering why we called this campfire. Um, but if, if people don't see that you genuinely care and you genuinely get to know their names and things like that, they're not going to be interested in what you have in your life. And there are times at those gatherings where nothing comes up. There are times where people don't even realize for the first couple of 
gatherings that I'm a pastor or that church is important to us. But every now and then there's a conversation that lends itself to great spiritual depth. And, and you wait for those moments and you're intentional about those moments, but you don't have to force them. You let the Holy Spirit do that. So, so, so the relational margin here, I think, is a big deal in, in our walk with God. And um, it's one of those deals where we just simply have to get this going. And I want to challenge you and, and get in your face a little bit here because I think every follower of Jesus says, yeah, yeah, that's something I know. He's right, that's something we have to do. But we have to do more than just agree to that. We, we have to do it. I mean, if you're going to follow Jesus, I think you need to have some relationships in your life with people who are far from God. Uh, that's how Jesus lived, and I think that's how we need to live as well.